Hey, this is Marcus Wilson and you're listening to Into This. Into This is a podcast where I explore contemporary arts and I do that through conversations with people involved in the arts in the city of Montreal in Canada. So how it normally works is that I meet somebody somehow, somebody introduces somebody to me, some artist, curator or student or somebody related to the arts and I ask them to come by to the studio and record a conversation with me. Some people like to see the questions before, some people don't, and that's how we go about it. Um, so yeah, so this is episode 10, and my guest today is Mark Duriak. So Mark Duriak is a multidisciplinary artist, and he leans a little bit heavier on painting. He holds a Bachelor's of Fine Arts from the Emily Card University in Vancouver, and then After a few years, actually about 10 years, after he decided to go back to school and uh, pursue an MFA. So he came to Montreal for that in 2014, and he graduated in 2017 from Concordia University. Mark has participated in solo and group exhibitions all over Canada and some parts of the US and in Europe. So we met right after he graduated. When we sat down, it was September and a few months, no, a month before the Charlottesville riots happened where white supremacists were protesting against the removal of some Confederate monuments and the counter-protesters who were protesting against the white supremacists. And as you remember, there was an incident in which uh, one of the members of the alt-right movement drove a car into all the counter-protesters and one person died. And I think I was really angry about that. And I think it comes across uh, in our conversation when I bring the topic because um, I, I guess I was thinking too much about it and I was just really angry. And um, I'm sorry about the tone. It's a, a little bit pessimistic. I mean, I take my rage out on, on basically human, human beings and I say that, you know, we haven't learned anything and, and that we just like to destroy shit, <laughs> which I mean, now when I listen to it, it's kind of funny. But I mean, I guess that's how I felt back then. And uh, I guess I still feel like that. But um, yeah, so that was that. And then so we sat down in September to record this conversation right after he had a show at uh, Project Panjai Gallery. And it was really cool. I mean, we talked about many things. We talked about how history and memory informs his work and about how how memory it's, is such an important and interesting thing because sometimes you don't know when a memory is your memory, when a memory is being given by somebody else to you, which is, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting topic and I think that informs a lot his work. So we had a good conversation. I think Mark Duriak is a very insightful dude. He had really interesting points of views about the art market, about the art scene in different cities of Canada. So he has lived in Vancouver, in Toronto, in Montreal. And, you know, he had some insights on the differences and similarities of them. So I hope that you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. This is Mark Turiak and me in the little studio. Thanks for listening. Where do you grow up? I was born in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Um, I was raised up there. I, I didn't know much better, but I loved it um, growing up, and it, it was a cool place. 
for me. Uh, but I did leave relatively early. Uh, I was uh, working at an art gallery in there called the Mendel. It's now the Remain Modern. It's like big fancy thing now. Right. It's pretty crazy for Saskatoon, actually. <laughs> Everyone's really excited for when it's going to open soon, hopefully. But uh, uh, I was working at the its predecessor, the Mendel, and uh, a, a photographer, her name is Marion Penner Bancroft, came through and uh, she did a, a talk and she spent a lot of time talking about her students. And uh, I was just really... I kind of had no idea that artists would work that way so closely with their students and so few of them, like she was talking about having a class of like 10 and they would go work on the beach and stuff. And it really kind of changed what I thought was available from education. Um, so I kind of immediately looked into where she taught, which was at the Emily Carr Institute of Art and Design. And then so I pretty much applied straight away and was you know fortunate enough to be accepted. And I went there to work with uh, Marion and to a greater extent Liz Megor, who was really like uh, a, a major mentor to me and a, you know an inspiration. She did a big show here last year; it was crazy. Um, and uh, like she's been, you know, one of the single biggest influences on Canadian art, I think, in in a long time. And she's just like a lovely person and like a guru of art, sort of thing. So. Um, and, and she gave me a lot. Like, she's a, a very honest person. Like, uh, one of the greatest gifts I ever got from her was in a one-on-one -on -one meeting. And I think I was, like, maybe 21. Uh, and, like, all 21-year-old guys, like, was just, like, you know, big dreams about being a star. And so Liz, uh, I think it was two days before uh, her opening of a mid-career retrospective at the Vancouver Art Gallery, like, two whole floors, you know, it, in my limited imagination, it was pretty much as big as you could get, right? That's so true. here was a person, she was living off of her art. She was like, you know, the toast of the town, la, la, la. And we were doing one-on-one um, uh, -on -one meetings. You know, you would work with an advisor and they would meet with you one-on-one. -on -one. And uh, she just looked terrible and, uh, and like, really down. And I, I, you know, again, like... My understanding was pretty limited at the time, but I was just kind of asked what was wrong and all that sort of stuff. And she just kind of, you know, was looking off into space and was just sort of saying things like, I wonder if I've wasted my life and all these sort of things and, you know, what's it all for and all this. And I just remember looking at her in utter, uh, like, un incomprehension because I was just like, what the hell are you talking yeah, about? Yeah. Right? Like, you're you're winning. Like, you're killing it. You're like, I, I want to be you, basically, right? And... uh I didn't really understand at the time, but in the years that followed, uh, you know, I've personally uh, felt that, like, what the hell am I doing, you know, and I've, you know, and a lot of my friends have too, right? And it was such a such an incredible gift to be able to look back and then draw on this and realize that this is just inherent to, to the pursuit, you know, to, if you want to be an artist, it's kind of a, an idiotic thing, you know, it's a, the only job no one asked you to do, basically, right? So... Uh, it's normal to feel these sort of like deep doubts and things. So it was really like the best lesson I could have learned was to just have, a, you know, a real artist I respected just be like, I think I've, you know, majorly screwed up my life. To you, somebody like that would look like indestructible. But yeah, she was, yeah. you know, a hero status, right? Yeah. So uh, to have, to hear her express such like clear existential doubts, you know, again, I, I didn't get it at the time, but like later it was kind of like, oh, right, like, this is just normal, you yeah. know? Like, if, if she could feel that way, then, you know, don't worry about it kind of thing. I would venture to say that is 
it's kind of like a human condition. I don't think that it only happens in, in the creative work. I think it's just like you get to a point in your life when you realize of things for you to discover when you're more mature. And then you say like, oh, shit, <laughs> this is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> Holy fuck, you know. And then you have to make pieces with it. Like, have you found a way to like look the other way or something? Because like that seems to be to me at least now what it has to be done because it's the human condition. I just try not to beat myself up about it. And then, like you said, just accept it. Mm -hmm. Weather the storm and realize that I'll feel better in the morning, basically. Mm -hmm. Not get too dramatic about it. Although, I mean, you know, sometimes it's it's easier than others. But like you said, it's, it's like that for everybody. Um, but yeah, I don't know, just whatever. For sure. You know, and that's what coming back to that, that lesson was just that, like, just to be like, just don't worry about it. It's like so... Yeah. Do you have any influences growing up or your family was like into arts? Um, my family has been utterly supportive of me at every level. Um, and I, I can't imagine having better parents who, you know, have never said anything other than encouragement to me. Um, but that said, um, you know, neither of them were especially involved in the visual arts. Like there was just no antipathy towards it or anything like that but at the same time you know uh they grew up on like farms and like pretty much the middle of nowhere and like really made a great lives for themselves but that didn't leave a lot of room for other things um so i think early on i would say that uh like i was like you know there's lots of kids who can draw i could draw i got praise for it i liked it you know so i kept doing it and then i read a lot of comic books uh comic books i, I think about them a lot to this day actually um i don't read them anymore though but um <laughs> well i can't afford to um but like that was i kind of like I, I learned a lot about drawing just by copying from comic books and stuff and then later it became more of a you know, I started to seek things out more. But even then, you know, I still had a pretty limited idea of what art could be uh, really until I got to Vancouver. Um, so it was more just like pig-headed ambition that led me to the Mendel and then to Emily Carr than anything else. And then uh, I just was like, you know, just like plain lucky that I ran into like not just Liz, but like a peer group that I think was just like, uh, an exceptional bunch of people that, you know, still inspire me all the time. Like, oh, just, I, yeah, I can't believe who I was privileged to, like, study with, but also study beside. It was mm -hmm. crazy. So, uh, and that, that period was, like, a time of, like, huge learning for me. I mean, like, everybody, you know, you move away to school, you learn a lot about yourself and stuff. But it, also on top of that, it really expanded what I thought art could even be and how far it could touch on, you know, beyond just, like, you know, how to make a good painting that looks like something, you know. Uh, but, you know, because at the time in particular, it was it was really, this, you know, Emily Carr really focused heavily on um, the, how an idea could be given form and and, and how that was what really drove everything. And, you know, skill uh, and technique were important, but they weren't, they weren't the, the priority, you know. So it was, it was kind of the attitude seemed to be like, you can learn how to make things, but we're not going to waste time. What we want to teach you how to do is how to think kind of thing. And that's, you know, uh, it wasn't for everybody, but it was what I needed really badly. So it was good. That's me. what I've heard, like yeah. intellectual skill. Yeah, yeah, and, like, yeah, and also to be challenged over what 
I even like defined as an intellectual skill mm. and and to uh, to place less value on uh, goals and like hierarchies and 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 what something should be as opposed to just what it is over the course of how you arrived at it. You know, just really opening up how to go about thinking in a lot of ways. So, right. so that that was a formative educational experience for me certainly although i mean like i like it left me pretty scrambled at the end i'll admit because it was like pretty intense and i was like it took a while to digest the lessons that i learned so like after you finished school like that that was still like going on in you sort of like growing these ideas yeah yeah big time um and it, it took quite a few years quite a few years actually to settle i was kind of like a real magpie you know uh, i wanted to try everything and find a way uh like in terms of different arts to make and stuff like that uh yeah so what happened after you finished like what do you what were you doing after your bachelor's a lot happened um i kind of kicked around for a little bit in vancouver and then i was uh, invited to do an exhibition at the mckenzie art gallery in regina it's a museum in regina saskatchewan and uh It was it was really generous. They brought me they brought me to Regina to do artist panels and stuff like that. And when I was there, I ended up meeting one of the one of the women who worked at the gallery. Um, and then we kind of kept in touch over the course of a summer. Uh, I went back to Vancouver, and then uh, I ended up moving to Regina that fall. And then uh, um, we ended up living together for about eight years. And we we went kind of kicked around all over the place uh, with friends and stuff. And we, we moved from Regina to, to Europe and then to back to Vancouver and then to Toronto. You know, when I arrived in Toronto, uh, out of just another round of just dumb, blind luck, um, you know, when you're in a town that isn't that big necessarily or an art scene or any scene, and you know... 50 friends of another person, but you've never met them, and sure. they've met all of your friends and stuff. So this happened to me in Toronto when I showed up with a, a great friend of mine, Nicholas Brown, who's a, now a Canadian art, but at the time he had uh, just been finishing up his MA at York and had sort of like uh, bullshitted his way into being the, the director of uh, a gallery that Red Bull was running in Toronto, and he... Uh, needed basically technical help for putting things up on the wall, like a gallery technician. And I'd never really done that, but I'd worked as a, a technician at Emily Carr just before that, before I arrived there. And he, he basically was like, well, if you can like use a table saw, you could probably put things on the wall. And I was like, well, and I could probably Google everything I need to know anyway. Mm -hmm. And then we spent the next like two years uh, just like doing whatever the hell we felt like. And with Red Bull just basically... Uh, bankrolling everything, which in hindsight is insane because like we were just like th like two guys in our 20s that were just like showing uh, young Canadian artists that we thought were cool and exciting. It was pretty cool to be like, hey, we've got kind of like almost a blank check. Do you want to come to Toronto and like do a project in a really bizarre space? And they would say, with who? And we're like, yeah, Red Bull. But I have to say, Red Bull never, never, ever stepped on our toes in terms of artistic uh you know integrity we did whatever we wanted uh and it was really cool so we spent two years doing that and it was a real cool thing too because i got to meet a lot a lot of other people through that just because we were like kind of just doing things and stuff so 
Um, Were you ever involved in the uh, sort of like curation of shows and stuff as well? Yeah, well, yeah. it's a funny thing because uh, it was basically a partnership mm. where Nick Nick's a much better writer and certainly uh, much better at the sort of publicity and social aspects of things. Whereas, you know, I would handle a lot of the technical things, but also uh, a lot of the liaisoning with other artists, and we would develop our shows kind of together, uh, but not... So it was it was kind of the best kind of partnership, I can say, professionally speaking. So, you know, his, his ideas had a lot of influence on how I would go about my job and vice versa, right? So there, it was like a really good team back and forth sort of thing. So... Um, So, yeah, I mean, I, I had a fair amount of curatorial input, but I wouldn't go so far as to say that, you know, I was curating yeah. exactly. Um, but certainly, like, Nick was, like, very gracious, and we did a lot of work together, and he would, you know, I definitely had his ear in the same way for him, right? So we did a lot of cool shows, a lot of fun stuff. So, and that was a crazy two, two just over two years, basically. We thought we were going to get six months, but they, like, kept us on. That's pretty cool. Why did it stop? Well... A whole host of reasons, basically. Uh, one, uh, when we first started doing it, Nick and I sat down and basically said, like, you know, this is about a year, I think we're going to do this, you know. Um, and But we also kind of figured we wouldn't get more than a year mm -hmm. anyway, but we were kind of like being like, you know, no one wants to get dumped, you want to like go first, right? So we we're like, we'll, we'll say a year, but then, you know, none of us, we kind of needed the money too. So <laughs> when a year turned into like more than a year, it's like, okay, well, maybe we'll keep going. Um, so... By the time we were done, we did have a sense of feeling like we kind of were ready. Uh, and the other thing was more like simple logistics was basically that the gallery was run within the actual offices of Red Bull. Yeah. So it was like a, a two-story space in Toronto, and the first floor was devoted to us, and then the second floor was almost exclusively offices. Um, but they, Red Bull had consolidated two offices between Vancouver and Toronto, and uh, they got in a bit of a spat with their landlord who wanted to develop in ways that they didn't, and they couldn't get the space they needed, basically. Mm. So toward, like maybe the last three months we were there, they'd, they'd put these two offices together, and so Nick and I, when we walk around, we would see like executives, like senior executives who would like picked up their whole life from Vancouver to Toronto and they'd be sharing offices two or three to a time. And we were like, okay, you know, we, we even talked about it. We're like, obviously this can't go on. They, they need more space. And sure enough, eventually they're like, look guys, like we're really sorry about this, but we, we need the space, frankly. Yeah. So yeah. the gallery got turned into office spaces and stuff like that. Yeah. But I mean, they kept us on as consultants afterwards anyway, because they felt so bad, even though we were like, that is completely legit. Like, you don't owe us anything. So you were basically like an employee of Red Bull? Mm, not an employee. No? That we were always consultants. Consultants, I guess. Art consultants. On paper, that's what we were. <laughs> right, uh, right. But that's more an accounting thing. Mm. And, uh, and also, you know, the nature of, of gallery staff is that You, you know, you're not necessarily around that much, right? Like, we would be around a lot uh, for, you know, the install periods of things uh, and then for meetings. But then, you know, when a show's running, you know, we the, we would check in and things like that. Uh, Nick would be there a bit more than I would at that point. But we there would be staff, like, handling the gallery and stuff like that. So uh, we weren't there all the time to be staff exactly. Mm -hmm. So, um So, yeah, that's how we were consultants. But that's that's really just like an accounting thing. And also, I mean, 
like they were nice to us, but we were definitely the black sheep of of the of the <laughs> office because like you know the artists. <laughs> yeah, I, and I mean they put up with some kind of weird projects. I have to admit, there was a few times when we were kind of like we've maybe gone a little too far with with this one, but like nothing too weird. But like just like there was times when we could sense that they would they would prefer that our next ex- exhibition might be maybe paintings or something like uh, that and not like uh, we did one with a Toronto artist uh, her name's Swintax she's in Montreal now and she wanted to make the world's most boring roller coaster which we made for her and it was super boring it was just like uh, it's super hard to explain but basically it was just like a winch pulling somebody on a wheeled dolly <laughs> looking at the ceiling and then it and just would get to the other end of this platform, and then the gallery attendant would just say, like, okay, that's it. And then people would be like, <laughs> what? And then you're like, well, that was it, you know? And then so that was, that one I remember, some of this guys in sales were kind of like, you know, what the hell is this <laughs> shit, you know? So, and so. But that one was one of our more popular shows, weirdly. For so. sure. I mean, for sure. That's like a very original idea. It was like, yeah, it was like, it was super interesting. And I mean, there's more to it than that. But I mean, it was a very tolerant place and they bankrolled everything and they were totally cool. But they, there was times when they, you could tell they were like, couldn't we do like a graffiti night or something? And we we're like, never. So not that there's anything wrong with graffiti, but it just felt like it was too um, prescribed for right. Red Bull. They were like, well, you know. That's what people want. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and um, do you ever sell stuff there? No. No. That was uh, I mean, I I think some artists did end up, you know, selling things mm-hmm. based on people had seen it there. But no, we was, I mean, we didn't want to uh, at all to even get in, caught up in that. And I mean, there was, uh, in terms of optics, a necessity to not do so because I think there was a lot of well-founded reluctance to participate in such a corporate environment, you know, uh, going in, I was definitely a little apprehensive about that. You know, we did lose some artists just on the, the perception that, you know, they didn't want to work for, you know, you know, this whatever kind of company. So we felt that to add uh, explicit sales onto all of that would just, you know, make it even worse. But it, we just didn't want to. It wasn't part of our mandate, and we didn't have to. So uh, if if artists were able to sell out of there, that was, like, so much the better for them. But we we didn't have any interest in participating that way. That's you know? the best. Like, yeah. If you don't have to, that's great. Well, yeah, and it was yeah. a very, like, privileged and luxurious position for us to be in where we could just ignore all of that stuff and just, you know, be, be crazy, mm-hmm. you know. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know that was a, that was a cool learning experience. I learned sure. a lot about you know working in galleries and all that sort of stuff. You know. Yeah, that was my next question. Like, so did you ever picture yourself doing that in the long run? Well, I mean, subsequently, I've worked in uh, quite a few art galleries, uh, both both here in Montreal and in Toronto as a art technician and artist assistant. So I mean, it led pretty directly to one of my main lines of income. And and it also has really influenced how uh, I regard my own work existing in space, you know, uh, because I've spent a lot of time thinking about it on behalf of other people, uh, just on and spent a lot of times in different kinds of galleries, you know, and have thought, you know, it, I mean, I don't think I'm the only uh, 
tech out there who's, you know, fantasized that if they weren't putting up this person's art, you know, what if I was putting up my art in Mm. this huge, cool gallery, right? And so uh, from that point of view, I think that shaped a lot of how I approach my own presentation styles. When I'm putting up my work, you know, it's informed a lot about by what I've, I've seen other artists, you know, use as approaches and then how I would have, you know, either done the same or maybe, you know, tweaked it a little bit and stuff like that. So uh, that part of my life is a big part, you know, because it's both my income, but it's also shaping how I view uh, how the gallery works, basically, you know, uh, having spent a fair amount of time just like in galleries, in various states, you know, from stripped down to like finished show with people going through it kind of thing. So Does that ever influence how you think of your own work in terms of making it more like gallery-like, you know what I mean? It's like, okay, so like the galleries that I've seen, you know, like they're more drawn to this kind of work. I'm going to try to like emulate that maybe or something. Probably unconsciously, mm-hmm. although I would love to say that ne- never. For sure, for sure. Um, I think a certain part of it sneaks in where I also have a, a kind of like, well, you know, uh, I, I've seen that a million times. So I'm going to do that, but not, you know, like mm-hmm. slightly different or something like that, um, which, I mean, is is probably just about personal gratification more than anything. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say it has no effect, but I don't try to structure things around what I think people want. Well, yes, I do, actually. I do think a lot about the viewer and how they're going to encounter something. And a big part of my goal is for engagement and perplexity and pleasure on the part of the viewer. But if that's the same thing as what galleries want, you know, it's, it's tricky, right? You know, like, you know, what are you asking? Like, what does the market want? What do curators want? Or what do viewers want? Um, you know, I feel like if I knew what the market wanted, I would probably do it. But I think it's like a dangerous thing to chase because, you know, if you're chasing, you're always behind. Yeah. In my little time that I've been looking into this stuff, it looks to me that the market sort of like follows. So like you're doing your work and then it starts to get like really popular. And some people decide to just go in that route and then continue to make that thing that people are liking. But if there's a formula, probably a lot more people would be doing it. Well, of course. I mean, it's an awesome job. And if you could make sweet money doing an awesome job, I mean, you know, of course, right? So, um, but... You know, it doesn't really work that way, right? Mm. Uh, and it, and and also, you know, that's pretty heavily missing the point of like the whole endeavor. Exactly. <laughs> but but it's it's that still a reality, sense. though. So you know, I can't say it's not in my head ever, but I I hope it's not what's driving my decisions. Mm. I don't think it is, but you know, it, it's I, I'm I'm suspicious. I guess you know. I mean, I'm making paintings right now when I used to make like weirdo videos and stuff and. You know, uh, no, but I can tell you, like, at least just looking at your body of work, like yeah. you're not following one path. It looks like you're trying to discover things for every research project that you have. You think about one specific thing to do. It's mm-hmm. never like just one thing, like, I don't know, say lines. Like you, you don't only paint lines, right? Like it's, it's, it's always like changing and it's always maybe like fitting better with one project than the other, certain styles, mm-hmm. yes. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that, what, I, what I'm trying to say by that is that uh, it doesn't look like you're like just chasing that. You know what I mean? Because, well, 
Yeah. You know, like some people may like your laser paintings and some other people may like your <laughs> your other paintings. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, like I get bored, I guess. Uh, you know, that's why I like art because it's always different. That's why I like it too. Honestly, yeah. that's why I'm like doing all this stuff because I get to think about things that I never imagined. Yeah. You so uh, for me, it, it just... I mean, I guess it's childish to like build your life around not wanting to be bored ever, but I think that it really does drive a lot of why I do it, but also why like there has been so much flux in everything that I've made, you know, and uh, yeah, I like right now I want to stand still a little bit more and not like jump around quite so much, but. At the same time, like, I can already feel it. I'm kind of like, oh, I, you know, it's like, oh, it's like, wouldn't it be interesting to do some coding or something like that? I don't know how. And, yeah. Problem is, is it takes time, you know? Mm. Uh, and uh, picking up new things takes a long time. Yeah. And to do them anyway, halfway decent. Like, exactly. Mean, Getting better at it takes a, it takes time. Yeah. And increasingly, I want to be good at something, like, really good. Um, and I think... As I get older, I'm starting to realize that just because I could do a, a pretty decent job of it doesn't mean that that's got anything to do with anybody else. Uh, and so I think that, you know, presenting shows in public uh, is about more than just me proving a point about how much I could do, which, you know, really did drive a lot of some of my earlier work. Like, I was really intrigued by this idea of, like, okay, well... If, if the world is digitizing and roboticizing, you know, what is the capacity of an individual? Like, how far can you take something? So, like, those laser paintings I wanted to be, like, could I make something that looks like it came out of a printer but didn't, you know? Which now just sounds so adolescent and ridiculous. Like, who <laughs> well, who cares, right? Like, right. big deal. Like, whatever. Like, okay, great. Like, you know, you figured it out. You have the skill, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, in... I'm being a little bit harsh about the whole thing, but at the same time, it's like, if that's the, the thing that I'm asking someone to buy into, it's like a pretty thin thing, like, mm. because that's, that's about me showing off. Right. And, you know, if, if, you know, if you're not my parents, you probably don't give a shit about, you know, how good I am at like making a thing, you know? So, uh, beyond what pleasure it can bring to you, um, which I think is real, but at the same time, that's, that's like, you know, that's sprinkles on top of the ice cream. That's not the ice cream, right? You know, there has to be more substance underneath it than that, than just, like, look what I can do. You know, that's that's kid stuff, right? You know? Yeah. Right. So. Is it really um, solid in your mind, the idea of what do you want to do? What is that, like, cake substance <laughs> that you would like to achieve? Or is it, like, building up as you do it? Uh, I guess it's probably more building up. I think... I want to be as honest as I can and just let it flow out at that angle. So coming back to, you know, when I do the research things and stuff, um, what I hope is starting to happen is it's starting to, when I honestly express what my interests are and what I've learned through them and then try to not describe them literally so much as let them guide my hand as I do things, I hope that the the sort of myself as like someone to be encountered through my work is what comes out you know uh and then 
that being the substance, you know, and, and not trying to make it about anything other than, you know, not trying to hide behind you know, great art arguments and stuff like that, but more just be like, I don't know, like I'm a geeky guy and this is what I like and this is how I think I'm going to go about it. Uh, and if, if, if you can find something for yourself in there, because I'm trying to be honest, then maybe that's where your connection can come. Um, but so it, maybe that's the substance and then, but I still want it to be like good in, in what I regard as good, which is something that I try to like ask myself about, you know, right. like, cause it can be easy to get like, this is good and get dogmatic about it. You know, going back to what I was talking about at Emily Carr of being like really shaken over what I even defined as good. But I do, I do spend a lot of time thinking about the actual, you know, the technique that goes into it, but in some ways I think of that almost as like a promise mm. on my behalf of like, you know, I'm not fucking with you. Like I'm, and you know, here's how you can have some faith in that. It's like, look, you know, look at this kind of thing. But also again, there's this certain pleasure. The gallery should have an aspect of pleasure to it. You know, even if it's a complicated pleasure, you know, like I said earlier, like a, a difficult idea or a challenging idea can be pleasurable if you allow it to be, right? So, you know, pleasure in the gallery, at least for me, doesn't have to be just like, you know, oh, that's a nice color, I love it, you know, or like, oh my God, like that apple looks so right. real, which could be cool, but I mean, it's just, it's, it, you know, pleasure could also be like, you know, uh, I never thought about that before and it's really bothering me and I can't stop thinking about it, you know, but... I, I, I've been challenged by that, you know, so. Totally. Yeah. Totally. When I started to go to galleries and to museums and stuff, which it hasn't been long, my sort of like measurement of how I liked something, it was not for just like the pleasure, the pleasure as you know it as, a, you know, eating a really delicious fruit or something, you know, the pleasure of, of actually feeling things. Like sometimes if I would get like disgusted by something, for instance, mm. that would be like a success for me. Exactly. Say, like, fuck yeah, this yeah. is this is good or like or scared or like angry or something, you know. Yeah. yeah say like, OK, this is this is actually working. And when you see something that doesn't really make you feel anything, then you say, like, OK, so maybe this is not for me. Yeah. Like, maybe it's for somebody else. Exactly. But not for me. Yeah. Uh, and I like to go back to to what you said about like you deciding what is good or not, right? I guess that also bleeds into the idea of who validates your work or who validates you as an artist. Is it always from you, or like you look at the exterior and see, for instance, like peers or I don't know, critics and things like that that can actually say something about your work and how do you value that, for instance? Um. I don't even know that validation is that big of a deal, really. Yeah. Um, for me, I, I mean, I want it. I love it. You know, uh, when my friends say say cool things or ask questions that, you know, I, I'm hoping to get at, you know, when, when I feel like I, I'm speaking in a way that people can actually, you know, get something out of it, I mean, I find that very validating. Uh so that your work is actually working. Like the, the, what you're putting out is actually doing what you want it to do. That's Well, I don't want to just talk to myself. Right? I mean, right. I, uh, I do that enough as it is. I don't need to have <laughs> it be a professional reality too, right? So, um, 
my goal is to to participate in a broader conversation and to communicate, um, you know, as best as I can in terms of what I see around me. And, you know, and I've, I've been blessed with the opportunity to spend more time, I think, than a lot of people can, uh, thinking about what's important to me and pursuing them in ways that I think, you know, uh, is, is, is really unique in that not, you know, a lot of people have a lot more shit to worry about in terms of real life stuff. And I've been really lucky that I can like spend a lot of my time thinking about abstractions, basically important abstractions, basically maybe, but you know, still, you know, I'm not in locked in any sort of like fight for survival or anything like that. Right. So, I mean, for me, all of that has a purpose to it of this, like participating in a discussion. Uh, but val- validation, I don't know. That's cool if that's not a thing. Well, no, I yeah. mean, it's a great question because it's just the, it's like how to say it without sounding like a total asshole. Like, I mean, like I do care what people think and I, I hope that it gives them something. Uh, I don't care to the extent that I'll, I'll change what I'm doing, but like I really hope, you know, th- we all want to be heard, you know, and I, I don't want to just be jerking myself off, even though, uh, you know, to a certain extent I am. But in terms of validation, I mean, I, 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 I don't know. I, I just like I don't know what else I would would do, uh, and so I hope I'm not too shitty at it I guess is is it I don't know validation it doesn't I guess I don't think about it that much obviously um, but not in some sort of like punk rock like arrogant like I don't care what you think I just it just of all the things that are like stuffed in my head that one doesn't creep in that often I guess right I just kind of do it because I don't know what else I would do no because like no- normally you know a form of validation can be like how many shows you have in a year or like how many like cells you have in a year uh-huh. like things like that you yeah. know what i mean for some people that is very interesting and very like important not, not only interesting but oh it's very interesting yeah. and important to me yeah. but uh right now uh, i can say that you know i want to have more shows in a year or blah 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 because it it facilitates it makes my I spent a lot of energy on like just trying to like present my stuff basically right so I feel that you know as more opportunities come I hopefully I know it's a bit of a fantasy but I'll spend less of my energy on that logistical end of things so that I can you know just go even further with what I want to work on. So I care very deeply about like these sort of like measures of success because they make my life easier. Like, and it does like every year that goes by where I have like a better year with more shows and stuff like that, you know, something gets picked up and then someone will invite me to do something instead of having to apply. So it's just, it makes my life so much easier to have it come. So I want it a lot and you know, I won't lie. My ego likes it too. It's cool. But, uh, you know, it's it's really not the driving force. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's totally cool. Yeah. 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 Hey, you want another beer? Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just take a little break. Okay. So we took a little break, went out to the balcony to get some fresh air and um, get some beverages, and then we came back. So you good? Uh, I think so. Let's just check the levels again just to make sure that everything is the same. Okay. Do you want me to yeah. check, check, check? Yeah, let me see myself. One, two, three. 
check, check. Yeah. The idea of collective memory and, and the past it's sort of like permeates in all your work a little bit, right? Like, um, well, certainly uh, the past and history, I think, history. are um, major ideas that are interesting to me. I think more and more I'm drawn to uh, ideas of like uh, an individual history as opposed to um, history how I think I was like taught in school of, you know, long current history, you know, of, you know, different, this country did this and all that sort of thing. Um, and now I'm more interested in a sort of an individual history, I suppose, or like a personal history, even though I, I acknowledge that that's basically an impossible project to put out there unless it's autobiography and even then but uh i'm interested in that part of sort of pursuing history as like not a bunch of like ideas that form but more how ideas affect and then how those lead to uh material or manifest uh examples in the world so that's where you know monuments and other things come up because it's it's sort of this sort of idea of a person as expressed through a culture but it's still families and individuals all grouping around an idea of what a person could be um so from that point of view i think that's that's one of the the most intriguing ideas to me of of what we think a person is um and so a big part of that is memory because You know, if you're thinking about a specific person, you know, it's 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 shot through with memory, right? Because, you know, you know people from what they've done in your time together. But uh, I'm less interested in uh, explicitly exploring memory, largely because I think it, it's just too broad of a topic, mm -hmm. like memory. Mm -hmm. You know, what is memory? So, I mean, for me, memory plays into all of these things, but it's really, for me, comes it keeps coming back to of what do we believe a person to be uh, and then what does that belief as it's expressed, you know, in various ways, what does that, uh, how does that square with what we see around us? And then wh how does that belief look in terms of what we see is actually true and like where the two don't line up and like where there's ruptures and breaks between, you know, an idealized desire to be something and then what, you know, we might think that we actually come out as and the tensions and, and what, you know, and everything that happens between, I suppose. Right, right, right. I was thinking about this in terms of how is that created or like, you know, what kind of influences go into thinking that that's a memory of anything, of a person or a historical event. But when you said um, personal history, what do you mean by that exactly? Well, I think, for instance, in, in the, using the, the example of, of a graveyard, You know, before the 19th century, basically, there wasn't really a lot of ideas about making that a personal thing. And then, except for unless you were a king or, you know, an aristocrat or something super wealthy. But then this sort of idea grew that everyone should be marked as a person. And then that, you know, hit a certain level, uh, you know, kind of in the earliest 20th century that was kind of its height. But then at the same time, you can go to communist graveyards and stuff where it's not the individual that's being celebrated so much as the idea of, uh, of an ideology. And then so where in like a sort of classical uh, kind of Western graveyard before that, you'd see, you know, 
prominent bankers' families have big tombs. You know, there's like a, a direct co- correlation. Or here in Montreal, you can go see, you know, uh, in the graveyard here, big family tombs and stuff like that. You know, so it's it's not unusual. You see the straight line. But in these communist ones, it's like the only re- idea or the only way that you can tell that someone was maybe had more influence or something was the proximity to the central monument within the graveyard because everybody's grave markers are all the same. They're just these, like, little tiles. Um, I mean, I'm talking about certain East German variants, but it bears out for me as an example of this this idea of, you know, what's being commemorated um, in terms of, like, the official history. So you've got the ideology of... Of of you know uh, uh, communism for instance or or is it a celebration of the individual person because like a lot gets shot through into like collective memory because the person who's being memorialized doesn't care right so that's the irony of everything so then it's like who's being remembered for what is what's going on and so I think a lot of these places are more like a mirror of what people hope they are or what a person could be you know and they're more talking about what they hope is going to happen to them after they go and less than the person who's already gone. Cause again, like they, they couldn't care less, right? Like whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I think so that that's for me, the difference between like the idea of, a, of an individual history and these sort of collective histories. And I don't think they're easy to divide because one influences the other, but, um, for me, at least I think it's interesting to try to explore within these sort of broad strokes, looking at, strangers and how they played in knowing that you know we're all going to be a stranger to somebody else in the future or or every day so um like for me that i guess that's as close as i can get to what i'm looking for when i'm talking about like a personal kind of history for these sort of things that makes sense and and you put that in your work at the moment i've sort of backed away with from being quite so explicit in terms of uh what i wanted to uh express and have used it more as the sort of framework that leads me to to create things that I'm interested in. So uh, I'm not completely sure how the two interrelate. I, it's a funny question. Like I think this is, uh, for me at least, this goes to the heart of this sort of rub between making art and doing research. Because, uh, uh, you know, I enjoy looking at, uh, like I like nerding out on the stuff I, I like. You know, I like to read about it. I like to explore, and it is a very kind of internet-y thing, you know, or go into like a Wikipedia hole or whatever, and there's, you know, all sorts of Atlas Obscura and all this stuff. Like a lot of people are into doing this stuff, right? You can get really deep and stuff. Yeah, and and I mean, it's cool, actually, you know, I mean, like you can watch a movie or you can go into a Wikipedia hole or whatever, and, you know, it's entertainment one way or the other. Um, But there for me is kind of the rub in the whole thing because like research can sometimes, for me at least, I was I was looking at all this stuff and I'm like, okay, well, that's great. You know, like I've really flushed out, you know, the Wikipedia page I would do or whatever, you know. But the, what happens in the gallery for me is, isn't strictly like that. You know, it's not a, a classroom. It's not a place for lessons necessarily. It's a place for encounter. And, and to a certain extent, pleasure. Now, how, how one defines pleasure, you know, is open, I think, a little bit. Um, but still, you know, a, a, you know a, a difficult thought can be intellectually pleasurable, right? So, so within the gallery context, I found that my research interests weren't fulfilling to the degree that I wanted them to, the sort of pleasurable, perplexing aspect of things. And they became more just sort of like 
show and tell, I suppose, is like, look at this like cool idea ahead and then look how the lengths I went to like flesh it out and then the two should be art, right? And then it's like, well, maybe, but not necessarily. So uh, right now I'm in a place of what I hope is some kind of synthesis between uh, what I find challenging as, as, as an encounter in the gallery that's fed by the things that I think about and look at and read about. Um, now, that's right now, and I'm sitting on like a whole bunch of material that I still think is good, but I just am um, trying to bring it together in a way that is, um, I'll say like more uh, like uh, sensual, I suppose, as opposed to intellectual. But I mean, like the two, you know, the two go together, right? You know, for sure, for sure. I've been looking into the history of Rome lately a lot because the thing is so funny and kind of like sad at the same time how the problems that they had back then in the empire and when it wasn't an empire also, it's just repeating again and again. Like the same issues that happened back then politically and socially it seems like uh, last week's news, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. in terms of like social uh, disparity, in terms of uh, how to choose who's in power, in terms of who is high class and what they have access to. Things like that that are so old and that are so, so present these days. It's insane. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to ignore certain uh, aspects of you know what's happening in America right now. I think we're 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 hoping that the strength of of like the Congress and the Senate are stronger than the ones in Rome, right? Because it's I don't know. I I I think that you know for sure for me at least a lot of the times I'm thinking about Rome, it would be like the uh, the imperial period, and it's easy to forget that the you know, the Republican period was hundreds of years long and then, you know, eventually it was shaken and then fell, you know. Julius Caesar almost did it and then Augustus did, you know, and then there was a prolonged period of civil war in between. So it it is kind of eerie looking at um, what looks like right now uh, of of the American Congress being tested, you know, to see whether or not they're going to, like, push back or what's going to happen you know so yeah it does i yeah i'm with you i see there's definitely some uh some weird resonances otherwise like obviously but yeah but then the the thought that follows that one is that i wonder if we forget like if i wonder if it's a memory thing or i wonder if it's just the lack of interest and knowledge into looking into the past or if it's really the fact that we need to experience things in our own flesh for you to really understand and and learn yeah well i mean i guess that's kind of part of the rub of things right is that um it's hard to see past our own lifespans you know because you know if you have children i suppose it's different but i still think that at a certain point you know reality ends with with me basically and I'm going to end so uh, from that point of view I guess it does seem like we're doomed to keep doing these things right because as far as any of us is concerned history ceases with us you know unless of course 
and I think this is an interesting thing, is this is where religion starts to play a role, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Because that's when you start to extend ideas of belief in terms of, like, maybe when reality ends, it doesn't end, right? So. Right. I mean, yeah, but that that's where you can bank into the religious beliefs. And you can definitely do a lot of controlling yeah. <laughs> with, that, with that thought, for I, sure. Yeah, and I think there there is definitely this Marxist attitude that I was definitely, like, raised in and still believe to a great degree of this, you know, the opiate of the masses kind of thing. Um, but I still, and this is actually an idea that drives a lot of what I think about. Um, I'm very curious... I'm very, very curious, and I have been for a long time, and I have no answer for this question. Uh, And this is a very religious question, I think, in a lot of ways, and it's that believing in the eternal, and to put it in a less mystical way, in the future, I think is one of the primary things that religion has been able to give us in a way that transcends biology. Because, again, like children can help that, but... This sense of a of, of faith in a in a future or a world to come, either here or another place, I think is a very powerful and possibly very important social construct, like an idea that's very necessary. Because when you think about it, without the idea of a future, we can do all sorts of horrifying things. Absolutely. Um, so that question of 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 faith or a loss of it, I think. It drives a lot of what I'm interested in, um, both from a, a strictly religious point of view, although I'm like too lazy slash too nervous to get embroiled in, into that because it, you know, religion is a, I mean, people spend their whole lives thinking about, talking about, and and researching this and, and can still make horrible er- errors and speak on other people's behalf. So I don't know that an artist can like, you know, offer anything that way other than to just sort of try to, like, open that up as a discussion of, of you know, given all we know about global warming and, you know, uh, nuclear proliferation and everything else, it, it, do we societally place, like, a lot of stock in the idea of a future or has that almost become like a, like a, like a, a quaint anachronism, you know, is that like a country hick kind of thing? Like, oh, you believe in the future? Like, what's wrong with you? Like, what are you stupid? Like, you know, uh, I don't think it's that far along those lines, but I do think that this question of whether or not the eternal or transcendence and in a, you know, to bring it back in the future, the near future, whether we believe in that in real concrete terms, like to, to build towards is a really key question, I think. Uh, and that's one of the main questions that drives me and what I do and is driving a lot of my work. Like, And you pointed that it is diverse, but this question has, has been persistent with me is of, of like almost whether or not we believe in believing. Mm. Uh, you know, is cynicism intelligence or is it just become default? You know, or uh, there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of different ways you can phrase that, you know. But I think that that really does drive things, you know. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the the cynicism part, though, I, I like to consider that more like realism, in terms of to the best of your knowledge, you know what is going to happen, which is like you're going to go to an end. 
that you your life has an end. And then from there on, because it's impossible to know, then you try to make the best out of this, mm-hmm. this reality, right? Yeah. I think that that's what drives a lot of people, just what it, what it can be done now. And I guess I guess you're right in terms saying that like religious people can actually be thinking about like the aftermath of that. But so far, as we know, it's just like working towards a better future in this reality, like now and what you can do in the immediate future. But what we were saying about this before is that it, it seems that everything repeats. It just seems that everything is going around and around and we don't learn it. Yeah. Again, I, but I don't know what can we do, though, even if we learned it. What do you learn about human society and about human race? That we just like to destroy shit? <laughs> Once you build it up, now destroy it. And again, well, I don't know, that sounds super pessimistic. But. Well, I mean, it sure, sure looks that way, though. Um, I mean, it, it's tricky because on the one hand, you know, you know, you open any uh, web news or whatever and, and, and you're flooded with all this concrete, inf- you know, evidence that confirms exactly what you just said. You know, we just like to fuck things up and stuff. And then... But on the flip side, you know, we know statistically that, and this is how, you know, this is a hard thing to say because of the deep inequality in our world, but still on an average across the human species, life has drastically improved, especially in the last 100 years. I mean, like we put 20 years on the human and life expectancy in the last, you know, 80 years. It took 2000 years to do the previous 20 before that. You know, um, violent crime and, you know, death through violence per capita globally are way down, all these sort of things, right? So, like, we are making these huge strides in a lot of ways. And yet, as far as we go, we seem to also, for each huge step forward in terms of, you know, equality and social justice, it also seems that we put another huge step into inequality and uh, especially financially, right? And I think that. I don't know. I do think that like sometimes it's easy to think about, okay, well, we've come so far uh, and and yet what is the foundation of where we've come from? You know, is it like global slavery basically that's let us come here or, or not, right? So it's easy to question whether or not we've actually done anything positive and if, or if we are just looping over and over and over again, you know, and we just, you know, have chosen – you know, when we talk about Rome, for instance, like it was like, yeah, that's all slaves, right? You know, maybe they didn't tell themselves that. And then, you know, maybe future generations will look back on us and be like, well, yeah, well, you know, you basically enslaved continents to to do what you wanted, even though you didn't have them in your household kind of thing, right? So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, there's, there's tremendous lessons to be taken from, uh, I think, the resonance of, of history. But I hope that, you know, we can look at it to to move past, you know? I don't know. That's an interesting thought about how things are perceived in the moments when they are actually being done because it's really hard to believe that the people who have done really crazy stuff like starting a war or things like that, it's really hard to believe that they're just thinking about being shitty human beings, you know? Like they probably are working in a mindset that it's valid for them. It makes sense to them to be like fighting for a cause. And I mean, I find really hard to believe that somebody is going to be like a one of those like 
cartoon villains and like, oh yeah, I'm gonna just fuck with these people. Mm -hmm. Like, I really find that like hard to believe. And there may be people like that, but I think that everybody works in a sort of like belief system, working towards an idea or like a ideal. I think I I think this is you put your finger on like one of the big questions that like revolves around belief, you know, um, because that's exactly the thing is that I think a lot of people could say the same thing. Like, there's very few people that are like such like a a, a void of humanity that they're just like like you said like a cartoon and. And I think that, you know, what we saw in the 20th century convinced a lot of people that belief belief is real and belief can do all sorts of things. And in, and in the n- recent history, it's done some particularly horrifying things. So I think that, you know, logically, it does make sense that we might want to sort of like dispense with ideas that are like couched in belief because they almost seem more dangerous well like this year 2017 20 fucking 17 and like there's people fighting for race you know what i mean i I mean like that sounds to me like very regressive and like it's impossible not to mention the charlottesville thing right it's just like but but the thing is again it's just like really disheartening because it's like what it's going on with you guys. I mean, like, what are you not seeing? What is different between, like, what you see as your reality, as a white supremacist, mm-hmm. and everybody else? Like, what is the real difference of perceiving life, you know? Like, look at the history. Look at look at what happened before and look at how you have evolved as a human being. And all that brings you there? Oh, what the fuck? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, those are the questions that... I, I just can't explain with all the knowledge and with all the freaking information that we have now. Well, it's interesting that you frame that through the lens of history because a lot of those groups seem to, like, want to talk a lot about history, right? Like, you know, they talk about, like, some weird or, you know, I don't know where they get it from, but when you hear some of the shit coming out of their mouth in terms of how they, like, imagine what like how they were like validating what they do they they turn to like like history to do it right and it's this warped weird sort of like 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 lyric history you know like a, a bardic history or something that is like disconnected from anything and then discount like all of like the more present and clear history that you're talking about of like well here's what happens when you act this way and it's awful and it's here's what happens when you don't act that way and history's shown us that like you know being chill is way better for everybody than being like this and yet they're framing it through a historical lens the exact same way that you are so it's strange how it's like yeah what i'm trying to angle this towards is like the memory again like the memory uh, as a collective group that we are as human beings well, the memory yeah. aspect, I think, is interesting because uh, you put your finger on um, you're closer to what my interests are in terms of memory because, uh, again, memory is, you know, broad and vague and slippery as a... as a, it, Like, it's too vague for me to, to want to, like, say, like, oh, yeah, like, my work's into memory because, like, well, you know, whatever. But one thing that you're talking about there that I am intrigued by is this idea of, like, like a an imagined memory versus an experienced memory is very much an interesting question. It's something that I try to explore. So it 
in some ways what I was thinking about when you were talking about like the white nationalist thing is like, you know, it's it's all couched in these ideas of memory and stuff, but like, you know, shit, it's nothing these guys remember, right? Like their dads fought Nazis, right? So it's it's crazy that it's being framed as memory because it has nothing to do with real memory. It's this sort of like authorship of memory based on an idea of history, right? And this sort of flexibility of time um, is very interesting. And I think, like, also, like, the my interest in monuments largely revolves around this sort of thing. And we're seeing this bearing out in, this, in, in the southern states, you know. And even in when Trump is, like, playing this game where he goes, well, you know, you don't want to... You don't want to have Stonewall Jackson up because of slaves. Well, guess what? George Washington did, mm-hmm. and so did he, right? And this interesting sort of like spiraling of meaning and history as encoded within these in these sites, and like the complexity of a person being summed up in a in, in a mute object is is I think like not to trivialize what we're talking about because like you know obviously the motives behind erecting the statue to Stonewall Jackson was to endorse a certain power system, right? Uh, Which, you know, I don't agree with, and I do think they should go. But I will say, though, that we are seeing a light shone on the the complexity of trying to sum up an entire lifetime of a person who interacted with a lot of other people and influenced their lives in a mute sculpture, you know? It's kind of interesting. It's kind of where art meets history in this clear way and it comes back to some of my reluctance about like just illustrating my 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 research because i don't think that art participates particularly well that way um because it can be read so many different ways and then it can change a lot from what you want as an artist and that's where i come back to being informed by what i look at but try to speak from myself right because then at least I can lay claim to it just being like my own thing, right? And not speaking for like a broader history. But then that's also questionable, right? Because you wonder, and and this talking also about like building memory versus actually experiencing Mm -hmm. things, uh, how much what you consider an original thought is actually an original thought or is like something that just your subconscious is picking up for like so many things that we're surrounded by and, and information, right? Well, I I do believe in that, and like it's gonna sound like hocus pocusy, but I do think that one of the things that defines an artist is a certain either attention to or sensitivity to those kind of things that are in the air. Uh, I'm not concerned with originality at all, really. Um, uh, novelty certainly, because it comes back into this um, pleasure, sure. you know. Because if I can offer something that's novel to someone, you know, I can engage them and give them something that way. But in terms of originality, I'm more interested in trying to like have like a a sensitivity, like antenna up for like what's in the air. Uh, Years and years ago, (laughs) I shouldn't talk about this because I have only like the crudest knowledge of it, but I think that it it, it can like uh, form like a framework. Uh, I read this book by uh, Rupert Sheldrake that introduced this idea of morphic resonance, um, which was interesting. And it sounds like bunk, basically, but it's basically, how does he sum it up? It's like some sort of field that we can't detect in any sort of way. So, you know, already, you know, and he's an evolutionary biologist, so, and not popular, (laughs) because 
you know, it's hard to quantify something like this, right? right? But he does talk about, like, these phenomena of, like, why certain species seem to have an affinity over time as they develop together. Or, like, like a dog and, and a human, you know? So one of the, the phenomena of how dogs seem to know that their owner is coming home, and then that can be dismissed as, like, a dog's sensitivity to schedule, but often they'll do it when someone comes home when they're not supposed to. They'll still know. And he uses this basically as an example to move forward into sort of the idea of maybe that, you know, once enough thoughts get thunk, they're somehow accessible to the wider public and they just become, like, easier to think. Uh, And again, I'm offering a very, like, Cole's Notes, like, bastardized version of it. But I like this idea because it has borne out in terms of, like, you know, different times when I've thought I've had a great idea and I know I haven't seen it done and then afterwards someone's like, oh, have you seen this? And it's basically the same thing, you know? Um, so I do think that there, there does seem to be something like this sort of collectivity that makes an idea, uh, aside from media, just more easy to think, basically, or more... E- it just seems like a more plausible, insane idea than every other stupid idea, you know? Uh you know, and you could attribute that to culture, I suppose, but at the same time, you know, there does seem to be something deeper there. And I don't remember where we started with that. Uh, but I mean, we're within this sort of larger bracket of my position to originality mm-hmm. and why I'm not especially concerned with it. Uh, it's not really my job, I don't think. I'd rather be, like, in touch with, like, the thoughts that are easy to think right now. You know, it's about being like, okay, well, if this is, like, <laughs> morphically resonant or whatever we want to call it in the air uh it doesn't really matter to me why or how it's just like whether or not it is and then to put it down because like you know that for me is more important than trying to like push something in terms of what i feel is original because i think that you know given all we know about, like, one, how difficult it is to be original. Like, the internet shows us that all the time, that every idea has been thought, la, la, la. That's such, a, like, a boring idea, you know, hmm. perspective. Like, there's no new ideas. Like, yeah, who cares? Um, uh, it's more like, which ideas do we buy? You know, because it's like, that that idea that, like, oh, there's no new ideas, I think hidden within that is in this, like, there's no new ideas within this specific trajectory of how we have constructed reality around us and what our culture dictates is true. But all of that is variable and up for grabs, right? And is subject to change. We know it has changed and we know it's going to change. So that, so then the, idea, the whole principle of originality is ridiculous, you know? I mean, it's just for me to lay down what I think it is or no, not even think, what I feel... Is 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 in the air, I suppose, um, and then just leave it at that. And then you know, if, if people like it or like ascribe to it, then I suppose maybe I'm close to what happened. And if not, then you know, either like I'm a visionary, or more likely it just like fucked up. You know <laughs> what I mean? So, uh, but none of the, but the point I want to make is that like all of that is out of my hands. It's just like a question of just trying to like respond to like what it is I think that's up mm-hmm. in a way that is like uh you know, shot through with my own experience and personality just because, like, I don't think there's any other position I could take other than just, like, you know, this is who I am and, you know, what I'm doing, right? So, yeah, I mean, I think it would be, like, way too ambitious to 
think of yourself, anybody, not just yourself, like oneself as like a special human being that can like oversee those things. You're just like one other person that is going through all the things that we are all going through. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, that's good though. I mean, like when I go to an art gallery and I see something that resonates with me because I feel that I've felt that thought, like I don't look at it and say like, ah, oh, this fucking sucks because I already thought that. I think like, ah, oh, thank God, you know, like this is, this person, you know, this person thinks like I do, right? Like going back to Liz's example of her being like, you know, I think I've fucked up on life. You know, like now I can say like, oh, well, I'm I'm not a loser or a freak because like I feel that way too, right? So there's, I think, a tremendous value that art can provide, not in comfort necessarily because, you know, it's not super comforting for like some fucked up person to tell you that they're fucked up and for you to be like, I, I get it. You know, I mean, that's not comforting exactly, but it's like... It's still good to know, you know, that, like, you're not some sort of, like, unique freak, you know? Because to be unique is also to be alone, right? And I I think, like, that's, like, the rub there, too, you know? Yeah, I'll just leave that there. (laughs) (laughs) I want to change the topic completely. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm trying to understand lately what makes, like, a professional artist... You know, like if it's like schooling or if it's the way in which you can have a conversation about art and the way that you work, your work ethics, what do you think it is? Well, I mean, it's kind of funny. It's like anything, right? Like if you can get away with it, I guess you're that. So, uh, and I don't want to be like evasive there. Uh but, I mean, if it speaks to other people, however the hell you go about it, I then mean, I guess you're doing it. You're an artist. Um, for me, personally, um, what makes a professional artist? I think, for me, one of the key things is being cognizant of part- participating in, in something that's bigger than me. A conversation, I think, of it is with people like you, with viewers with other artists and gallerists and curators and people involved. Um, because there's a, there's an important difference, you know, um, there's this idea of the, like the singular artist genius kind of thing who will just produce these, you know, give life to all of these things and stuff. And I think that this idea is at once beautiful, but is largely like impractical and problematic because it tends to endorse a sort of unexamined and, um, kind of selfish approach to the whole thing in the name of purity. Whereas I think that a, a, a professional artist in, in some sense is a bit of a servant and not uh, a star in that, you know, it's their job again to sort of be sensitive to these things, um, to be open to the world around them and to explore it and then to provide synthesis for others within like a broader context that could be historically driven or it could be like a local community. Usually it's complicated. You know, there's multiple, you know, a local community has a history and et cetera, et cetera. But anyways, in a participation with the, where they've come from, where they are and the world around them and offering things up as questions for others to, to grow from, I think is what for me, I hope defines a professional artist as opposed to, you know, there's a lot of people who make really beautiful or interesting things, 
you know, that they have no intention of ever exhibiting. And that's art too, but they're not necessarily professionals in that it's not designed to be positioned within this public uh, context in the same way. So I think that's the, the, dif- the difference between a professional artist and then somebody who might even be quite good at it and who in the future whose work might find their way into a, a, like a professional arts context. But I think in terms of intention, for me, that's it. Is like aim, like, do you intend to be public and converse there? And then if so, how, to what degree are you allowing other people in or speaking to them and stuff? And that negotiation can also be part of how you position yourself as an artist, you know, of how much you're like trying to respond or disrupt or um, participate, you know. But all of those decisions, those those understandings of publicness is, I think, what defines a, a professional artist for me. That's a super cool answer, man. Oh. That, that's cool. I, I really like that because I normally get the answers of... Um, you know, you, you need to be able to speak in public about your work. You need to be able to. Well, it to, helps. Of course, of course. I mean, like, and, and I guess like it is a different angle, but like that talks about what you just said, talks about awareness and also about the intellectual skill that we were talking about before. Well, it's that also, it, it's emotional too, though. Oh, for sure it is. For sure it is. I mean, like, you know, that phrase that people like to use lately of uh, art is not made in a vacuum. No, like it's it's in it's involved in so many more things, and it's it's influenced by many more things, and yeah, I mean, like that totally makes sense. So, um, you waited how long? Like ten years between bachelor's and master's? Oh my god, um, <laughs> it's almost embarrassing to say how long. Why? Ago. No. Why does this feel so old? Um, let's see here. It was. Uh, I finished my, I received my undergraduate degree in 2003, and then I start, began my master's degree in uh, 2014. So a little bit over 10 years. I guess that would make it 11 years. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, so, okay, so, yeah, over a decade in between. So you felt that... It was needed. You felt the need to go back to school and to get the uh, the degree for some reason, or or because you wanted to. Uh, it's a combination of factors. I think um, the atmosphere during my undergrad was almost that you know school was bullshit. Basically, it was a, it was a, it was it's strange. It was a very punk rock kind of attitude. Um, you know. It's funny talking about Vancouver in those terms, but, like, uh, at one time, Vancouver was kind of, like, crusty and, you know, ragged and, like, full of weirdos and stuff like that. And to an extent, I'm sure it still is, although that's changed. And that attitude, though, permeated a lot of things. So I remember even, like, being in school in my undergraduate and, you know, like, uh, being naive and being, you know, kind of concerned with grades and being kind of like laughed at by my peers, but it, it didn't stop there. It wasn't like, oh, you care about marks, whatever, let's go get wasted. It was kind of like, oh, you care about marks? How many shows have you done that aren't at school this year? And it was kind of like, and I don't know where this came from, but it was just kind of in the air. You know, it's like school doesn't matter. Although it mattered deeply for me, I needed it. 
not all of my peers did. Um, but so that attitude kind of permeated that it was like a, a bachelor was almost more than enough. You know, it was all, you'd almost done too much. Uh, and, and also the other interesting thing was that at that point, uh, I don't think anybody I went to school with in my undergraduate had come straight out of high school, maybe one or two, but it was crazy. Like every other person I would meet would be like, ah, I just spent two years working on like a crab boat off of Alaska. And I was like, oh, crazy. Like I've been, you know, like doing deep sea diving and like all these like weird life things that they did. Right. And then they came to art school and they brought these things, you know? So that attitude was very much so all this to say that when I finished, though the idea of like MFAs were like, like it wasn't like it was totally a legit thing. Lots of people were doing it, but it was, I, I feel like there's just a sense of that. It was like, well, why, you know, like just like either do or don't do, you know, like be an artist or don't. Uh, and that stuck with me for a little while. And, but I have to admit that it was always kind of in the back of my head because like, you know, I'm not opposed to the idea of teaching. I think I have taught at this point and I enjoy it very much. Uh, and that was always kind of in the back of my head, but it, you know, it's also part of the practicality of, of, of at least theoretically generating a greater degree of income out of all these things, because it does provide a benchmark for people to quantify something that at times can be very difficult to, to see why something's better than another thing or maybe not even better, but like, why is it that someone's willing to spend that, you know, a, a sum of money that's exponentially larger on an object that looks pretty much the same as another one, right? So mm. there is a practical aspect of, that way of the MFA. Um, I've heard of some curators saying that that's some sort of a, a little bit of a guarantee that you are serious about it, you know, that you are willing to spend the time getting the degree so that you can be taken more, like, seriously which is sounds like a asshole thing to say but i guess it's like a again like another well, validation point i guess i guess yeah. um yeah uh, that's a funny th i i can see it I, i understand that yeah for sure i can for sure see that but at the same time it's like to those same curators you know who are looking at some artists like well you know if doing an mfa proves you're serious if you're like some weirdo just like hacking it out on your own for 10 years making it work by like taking part-time jobs and like you know um adapting your your lifestyle around this other thing you know that's if you're looking for indica indications of commitment you know that's a pretty totally. clear one to me too but i mean You know, that does involve a lot of deep looking that I think, given the number of artists that uh, approach curators and other people and stuff like that, they don't, those people don't really have the opportunity to look that deep into people. So from, it is easier to say like, okay, you, you, you knuckled down, did this, there's it on a piece of paper I can see, you know, it's faster. Um, so yeah, I could see how it demonstrates a level of commitment, uh, The other thing, though, is that I think it was a good time for me because one of the, the best things about it, and if we're talking about perceptions of like what people perceive, one of the beautiful things about an MFA is that if you like make a big change, people expect it and want it. And I kind of felt that I had 
um, arrived at a point where I wanted to make a pretty substantial change in this, at least in terms of like the formal realization of my work. And I needed two things to achieve that was one, the sort of time that's provided uh, by the focused time that's provided by MFA um, because it does allow a level of like introspective work that is difficult to justify in any other terms, you know, financially, but also just like, you know, like to your friends and family, like what the hell are you doing? Like, I'm going to take three years off to just like focus on me. It's like you said that, you, you know, I mean, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but it's easier if you say I'm going to do a master's degree, right? Um, so from that point of view, it was good. But also I, I was cognizant that I wanted to do a pretty significant shift and I, I was hoping that it wouldn't completely like, uh, I mean, I, like we talked about earlier, like I jump around a lot as it is and I'm conscious that that's not necessarily a wise thing to do because you got to take people with you sometimes like like again when i was talking about what's the professional artist well you got to bring people with you right so the mfa offered that opportunity as well of 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 to make a big change in a way that didn't seem or hopefully didn't seem completely ridiculous you know so that was part of it and I mean, like I said, we were talking about earlier, like I goofed around and moved around a lot and did a lot of things, right? So for a significant portion of those 11 or 12 years, I didn't really have much time to do an MFA because I was too busy, like, doing, you know, moving, screwing around in film and, like, you know, having jobs and doing stuff, you know what I mean? So it timing lined up for me and, and whatever. So it was just when it worked. So, uh Although I'll admit that, you know, I, I'm 38 now and I, st I was applying to this stuff, I guess, when I would have been like 34. And I did have a sort of sense it was like, well, it's kind of now or never, you know, because mm. it's kind of pushing it. Or if, I mean, yeah, I shouldn't say that because everybody's got their own motives. But for me, it felt like it was pushing it as it was kind of mm. thing, you know, in terms of like, OK, like you're going to do this or not. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um. So you've been living in Vancouver, you've been working there too, then you've been also living in Toronto, mm -hmm. and then since, I guess, 2014, you've been living in Montreal. Correct. Uh, how does it compare, the three cities, in terms of like the art scene? Mm. Well, anything I'm going to say is, is, is like colored by time, right? So, because uh, like the Vancouver that I knew you know, that I left basically in, in 2008 has changed dramatically since. I still have a lot of close friends there and I hear things and stuff. So um, it's not the same place. But um, so Vancouver's art scene was incredibly concentrated and I learned some incredibly valuable lessons about uh, rigor and seriousness and detail. Um and about really believing it, you know, one of the, ins one of the incredible things about Vancouver, uh, which makes it, I think, unique in Vancouver, in Canada, is that there are a number of very significant and successful artists who are right there in front of you. They, they, they come out to things, you know, like global artists, you know, uh, you can go to, you know, some very like 
indie kind of you know young artist thing and it's not surprising to see some you know that stan douglas is there or you know uh ken lum or ian wallace you know not necessarily all the time but it's not out of the question so like the idea of what an artist is is present in your mind like you can see it as a reality it's not some sort of abstraction right um and that reality of it i think is is something that adds to like okay like this is possible and this is how you do it kind of thing and you got to work hard um so that was one of the biggest things that i learned there is like this like energy and this seriousness and this application and this intensity towards things but that same intensity at times can be daunting i think um you know, I, I feel like I'm not the only one to feel that, you know. Um, so it, it's it's like anything. Like, I don't know if you've been in a, a relationship that was, like, very, like, intense. You know, it's amazing, but it's also draining at times, right? So um, so that was, that was like, my, my approach to Vancouver or my, or my sense of Vancouver. Um, I think that it's, from what I understand, it's become a, a little bit, it's, it's mellowed a little bit and it's become a little bit bigger as a scene that as allows for a greater diversity of voices, which is great. But I think underneath it's still like driven by this like real commitment to like, you know, being serious and that like being an artist is not bullshit. It's real, you know, and that I think is really important. Toronto, um, also, again, you know, I mean, I have I haven't really lived there in a while, but Toronto, I think, is a, is a really exciting and huge place that like really blew me away by like the sheer scale of the art scene uh, relative to like what I was talking about of this like you know super intense density of of th- you know of of work. Um, well, just by numbers, I guess there's more people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and that adds a different thing. Um, and Toronto, I mean, it's more complicated because of that size, I guess. Uh, and, and also Toronto has like, a what I think is very interesting. I mean, Toronto marked me very deeply also in that you have, or at least I had much greater contact to like money not to say that I made any. What I mean more is like it was just more like, you know, some artists at, or some galleries and stuff at times, like you're hobnobbing with like, you know, the people who are like running the country and more, right? To a much greater extent than I felt that I encountered in Vancouver, which was a a, a very interesting social lesson, I think. Um and I don't, like, I don't put a value judgment on it. It was just something, it was my experience that, if we're talking about what was very different between one and the other, it was that, it was like, whoa, like, this is, like, crazy serious money and stuff like that. That is, like, I, I, I have no real comprehension of it kind of thing, which was new to me, um, but that was maybe just how it went. So that aspect of things, uh, I think, made me a bit more... Uh, less idealistic about what I thought it was I was doing and more, like, conscious of, like, the business of art 
in a way that was really beneficial for me. Montreal, uh, I can't claim to speak to it too much because like I've been here for three years, but most of that has been as a graduate student, which puts me in like kind of an isolated specific context, you know, um, seems awesome. It's really chill. I like it. Um, it's very creative and, uh, I, I feel like artists here don't have this sort of sense of having to justify themselves as much because it feels like the Quebecois culture um, has like a an easier home for the arts in their heart, I think, a little bit. Like it's just seen as like part of life to a much greater extent than it might be uh, further west. And that I think is like pretty like inspiring and heartening as a, as somebody working in the field that you know like because sometimes you wonder if anybody even wants this stuff and you know it, it it seems manifest like there's way more galleries you know you go like there's a festival all the time and it's not like it's just a festival it's a festival that is rammed with people right and it doesn't seem to matter what it is like music dance fine arts and stuff so um, that's like amazing to be exposed to. And I love that sort of energy about it, and it's really uh, an amazing thing uh, that I'm I'm intrigued to to be a greater part of, hopefully going forward. So um, that's as best as I can sum up my experience of the the three cities. Um, I think. I think it's a it's a trend that you can follow in other walks of life. I guess, like for instance, like saying that. In Toronto, there's a lot more like money talk, money related things. You know? Oh yeah, it's like, because it's a financial kind of like district, right? Yeah, especially lately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and also Montreal being a little bit more like in the socialist kind of like idea, for and, sure. like, putting out things more for the public in general and stuff. Um, but I wonder, in terms of, and I guess it, it it follows the same trends in terms of the art market. Like the art market by itself, like to actually sell art. I guess like Toronto doesn't compare with the other two cities. Well, I hardly ever sell. So everything I'm going to say is <laughs> like theoretically. Um, I mean, it just kind of depends who you are and what you're doing. I mean, there's people in every city who like sell like crazy and like are awesome artists too. And then, you know, uh, then there's others who are great artists who never seem to like catch a break kind of thing. So... But that said, you know, the fact is, is that there is a greater concentration of collectors within Toronto than anywhere else. It's like you said, it's just an effect of scale. Mm. Um, well, and also that it is the financial hub. And we know that, you know, often contemporary art and the financial uh, wing of our society, you know, do tend to evolve, you know, in, in sync. You know, there's no accident. You know, you look at what are the global art markets, London, New York. Um, you know, these are, you know, there's stock exchanges in both of those places, you know, uh, I mean, Paris, you know, um, you know, in Germany, most of the artists live in Berlin, but most of the art gets sold in not so much in Berlin, you know, it's more of the financial centers around like Dusseldorf or Frankfurt and stuff like that. Right. So there's no accident that the two seem to, to line up. Um, yeah. And, and that's what Toronto is in Canada. So I suppose it's not a surprise. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, I think we're good. Okay, yeah, we have like good, really good material. Is there anything that we haven't mentioned about your work? Because I don't want to miss that. 
Is there anything that you'd like to tell me more about? No, I like actually just talking around things and talking about thoughts and stuff. I mean, like, uh, you know, when it comes to the things I do, uh, I prefer to just, yeah, I prefer to talk around them because I think that, like, the last thing I want to do is... Uh, Explain it. Yeah, no, no, you wouldn't want to do that. But. Well, and the reason I don't want to do it is because coming back to this thing of, uh, you know, there, there's certain psychological things that, like, if you hear how a thing is supposed to be, then it's very hard to not, uh, to unhear that yeah. or unthink it, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I want, I think that my job is partially to, like, frame things in a way that, like, you know, you'll have an idea of what I'm getting at, even if you don't know exactly what all of it is. And then that leaves room for you to, yeah. like, bring yourself into it. Yeah. So, uh, and, and you know... That's it, very that's very consistent. Sorry, you were saying. Well, I was just yeah. going to say, like, if, if, I, if I'm, like, making a painting that's somehow, like, concerned with, uh, like, the structural look of memory, let's say... Uh, And that's what I think I'm doing. And you walk in, and it's and and you have some idea that it's about like, you know, my love of uh, poodle grooming or something like that. Like that's on me, really, right? Because like, what the hell happened in between there? That like, either like, you you know, you always think that everything's about poodle grooming or whatever, which I can't do anything about that. Or maybe I need to look in the mirror and be like, holy crap! Like, what am I doing that I'm being that I'm so far out of where I thought I was, you know? So anyways, that's why I would say that, like, this kind of thing, I, I prefer to just talk about the ideas that flow through some of these things that's as great. opposed to what's going on. But uh, we uh, could talk about that, but... No, 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 no. I think it's whatever you feel like really describes you better. If this is what it is, and I was going to say that it's very consistent with what you told me at the vernissage of your show recently, that sometimes you prefer not to read the text before going to the show. Mm -hmm. Go see the show and then read the text because it gives you a different experience. Yeah. I mean, like, what I want as a viewer is I want to, like, uh, encounter, you know, an artwork and the different things that it offers and then reflect on, like, how I connect to it and what it, it makes me feel or think about. And then, um, and then to deepen that, I want to, like, after the fact, you know, add the artist or the curator's words to my experience, not necessarily to like measure one against the other, but just to be like, Oh, well, yeah, that's interesting too. Because I feel like then it's easier to have both ideas in my head because, um, one and the other, but I just think that it feels to me like psychologically, like I said, it's difficult when I'm told, that's what this is before I've seen it and then I see it and then it correlates and then that's what it is. And it's much more, it's harder for me to place myself into something, you know, and I, I don't think I'm unique in that. I feel like that's like how people kind of are, you know, if, if, if you haven't seen it and you tell someone this is what it is and unless it's completely off base, like, you know, if you're like, again, like if it's completely crazy and you say this is about this and they see it, they're like, dude, I don't really think that's what this is about. You know, if that happens, obviously it doesn't happen. But, yeah. you know, if it's close, it kind of shuts things down in a way that uh, it's not that I don't want to do it. I just think that it misses the point, you know, like the whole point is, is, is this, like I said, this conversation, this participation in this sort of like... Um, You know, contemporary in particular is like it's not about a bunch of things outside of us. 
you know, it's it should be things that you like can recognize in some way. Maybe they're deeply distorted, and that's part of the uh, the part of the point. But uh, you should hopefully, you know, just be able to see yourself in it. Like coming back to Nick Brown, like this is one of the things that he was great at. Uh, he would always walk a lot of the staff of Red Bull through all of these shows, and would really like spend a lot of time just just like encouraging people that they're not wrong you know and that this work is like built from and drawing on their world right so that you can't be wrong if you can have an opinion about what you see in front of you and i think i learned a lot from that attitude of being like you know that's my job to offer up is something that you can recognize but maybe it's been like messed with or it's been recontextualized or you know there's all sorts of different techniques but like fundamentally that's what it should be so the 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 artist statement and stuff is, is like it's you know you got to be careful with it i guess to so as to allow for this that like what i was just talking about this like recognition to to be able to happen you know so i mean that sounds like a really good explanation of what contemporary practice is yeah in general i mean and it's informed by history of course because everything around us like we were talking about just now like everything that we see has been come from something and is built up and all these sort of things so you know that's funny though that if you look closely broadly you can also see the same happening in art styles and movements and stuff like they come back it gets recycled of course and then they go back again out and then come back in but there's meaning in that i mean it's you know, you could just say like, oh, well, you know, it's styles. You just got to pick something and whatever hasn't been seen in a while, you know, it is going to be legit. But I actually think that there's a, a critical dimension to what returns when and how. Um, and I'm biased because I'm actively doing that in a lot of my stuff where I'm quoting specific eras on purpose, you know. Um but I do think that that's kind of how we work, especially right now when we're talking about, you know, post-internet things and stuff. Like, how could we not? When you have all of the knowledge that we're conscious of at our fingertips, how could you not have that infiltrate what it is that you're doing? So then the question then is not like, is it valid to be returning? It's that why, why this, why now? And mm. for no, that's it. I was going to say for how long, but I don't even know if that even matters. Like, that would matter to maybe an art historian or something down the road. But as, in terms of you and me, like, looking at something, I think that it's like, you know, okay, of all the things you could come back to, of which there's, like, infinite, you've come back to this one. So original, original, like, who cares? It's like you've come back here, but it's obviously not the same because it can't be, and it's shot through with all these other things, and the context has shifted and all of that is where the meaning resides, you know, because um, that return is really, I think, at play in a lot of, like, that's a contemporary condition right now, this sort of, like, return to what and when and what, what if anything, does it mean, you know, or where does it lead, I think is kind of what we're this big soup that we're all kind of, like, both, like, joyously celebrating, but also, like, wondering what the heck it is, you know, so... That made me think of fashion, right? I mean, you know, the styles. Like, they go back and forth totally. all the time. Mm-hmm. And 
it's true that you cannot really put it in the same context because it's just not, <laughs> you know? As like, if you were like talking about like the style of the 70s and you put it now, it's just, it's, there's so many more things that are like around it that it just doesn't, you cannot think about the same way of, of the same style. Right, exactly. In the two sort of like different times, right? Right. Um, th this content is pretty good. Okay. I like, wait. Um, I normally ask my guests to tell me a story. Oh, yeah, the story. I mean, do you have any or? Oh, yeah, I got a lot. All right. Um, Just choose one that you really like. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be related to art. Tell us a tale. I guess we were talking about it earlier, and I do like this story. So, uh, about th three or so years ago, kind of like after years of writing away at Canada Council Grants I managed to like land one which kind of you know I it, yeah it was awesome it was no not kind of awesome it was super awesome uh, and in the letter it had a little line at the bottom that said something along the lines of uh, for artists who are working internationally um, you know uh, let us know and we'll write you a little letter of intro that for all intents and purposes, was like basically like, you know, this weirdo isn't just some random, you know, they kind of work for the Canadian government in a weird way, you know, was what the letter amounted to. So I was like, oh, cool, I'm going to be on the road, I'll write that up. Uh, and then a friend of mine had been working in, in the Canadian government in various capacities, and like I mentioned this to him, and he was like, oh, great, I can get you the uh, direct emails for the sort of uh, cultural or artistic attaches at some of the embassies that you might be involved with because otherwise it's hard to find those like direct emails and you're going into the switchboard and like who knows whether or not it'll actually make it to anyone. So anyways, I, was, I had this opportunity. Uh, I was in Paris f looking at uh, basically some of the social things around like Père Lachaise and like the way, uh, you know, 19th century had reimagined what tradition was in a really deliberate way. Uh, and in the course of reading about this, I came across this story of this guy, Philibert Asper, who may or may not have existed, and he got lost. The story is at least that he got lost in the catacombs and then died and then became a bit of a folk hero. And then the French state eventually made a tomb for him to a guy that might not have existed in a part of the catacombs that you can't go to. And I was just like, oh my God, that's like great. Like, this is like a guy who didn't exist in a place you can't see. You know, for me, coming back to this idea of belief, I was like, oh, like, that's just like made belief made manifest. So uh, I, I kind of got in touch with the Canadian consulate and blah, blah, blah. And they like talked to the French and all this sort of stuff. And what I thought was going to happen, or at least in my head, it was uh, going to go to the tour section of the catacombs where the bones were and maybe just get like a behind the scenes tour like it'd be kind of cool I get like maybe they'd let me take pictures instead of having to like you know buy a postcard instead um so I show up uh I got the confirmation like the day before I was going to leave I didn't think it was going to happen and I showed up there and sure enough met the archaeologist and I thought she was just like I said going to walk me across the street and we we're going to check it out but then like one person after the other showed up and they're like city officials and city engineers and like on and on and on and I, I was like standing there with like a pair of SLRs and like an audio recorder and a light 
And suddenly there was like a bunch of, you know, real people with real jobs, like people whose time like is valuable, right? Are all like standing around asking me like what kind of film I'm working on and like all those sort of things. And I was like, uh, and just feeling like kind of like a big fraud basically that cause I just sort of bullshitted my way in there. Right. And, uh, we're standing and I was just feeling so uncomfortable. I was like, okay, like let's just, let's just get going. You know, like this is getting weird. And like, I just want to like, just uh, and let's just go and I start to walk across the street and they're like where the heck are you going and I was like what and they're like well we have to wait for the chauffeur and I was just like oh my god <sighs> so this guy shows up and they drive us down and we end up going like into this close section of the catacombs and it was it was the most incredible experience of my life uh, and, or one of them I guess uh, and we toured around we found the thing and all that sort of stuff but uh, the whole time I was like caught between this like you know, gratitude for being in this, like, incredibly special privileged position, but also feeling like a total liar for how I got there. Uh, um, and, yeah, it was really cool. I spent hours. Actually, and one thing that helped was that um, in hindsight, I told this story to a friend of mine who uh, works for the city, uh, for our city, and he was like, oh, dude, like, no, no, no. He's like, not all those people were there for you. Uh, they probably have like a list in the office that's like, look, if we ever have a random time when we're just going down to the catacombs and you're interested in a little tour, put your name here because it happens every now and then. And I was like, yeah, actually, that makes a lot more sense because a lot of the people like never even talked to me on the whole trip. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's maybe what was going on. So I felt a little bit less like a like a charlatan there, but still a little bit. Didn't enjoy sort of like the celebrity kind of like feeling <laughs> being driven to. Well, it. I th I thought they would find me out and be like, "Who the hell do you think you are? Like, you just you're just some like random dude from Canada who's like wasting all of our time." I mean, I, yeah, no, I mean, yeah, yeah, I'm not gonna lie, yeah, it's 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 cool getting driven around by like a you know in a big city of Paris van and all that sort of stuff, but I you know it, I definitely was. Like I like I don't want to make it sound like I'd enjoy it. I did. It was awesome. But I mean I definitely also was like, dude, like you know, it's one thing when you're bullshitting like nobody, but like you you're like fucking with a lot of like like people who've got stuff to do, basically, <laughs> right? So um but it was cool and everyone was like super nice. It was awesome. So And at the end do you get what you were going for? Uh, I'm still working on that particular right. chunk of video, so um perhaps. Cool. Yeah, it was like uh, it was more than what I thought it was gonna be, and now uh, I'm uh, trying to figure out a way for it to sort of be what it was to me in some way. Even though I'm pretty sure it can't be, like obviously it can't be, but um, that's been the challenge of trying to uh, have the sort of like random wonder that that experience provided me me somehow come out for somebody else even though I don't yeah I mean like obviously I can't reproduce that experience through a video or an installation or whatever it would be but I want to somehow mm. so I uh, uh yeah mm. so I did get what I wanted but <laughs> w in terms of professionalizing it if we're talking about that I don't know cool yeah all right, Mark, I, I'm just going to say thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Oh, thanks for having me. It's awesome. Thank you. And uh, I'm say congrats on the MFA. <laughs> finished. Thanks again, man. Uh, thank you. Cool. Awesome. Right.
Okay, so that was my conversation with Mark Duriak. And uh, yeah, pretty deep. At some points, pretty deep. And uh, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed having Mark Duriak over. It was pretty fun. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening again. Uh, this episode was produced, edited, and hosted by me, Mark Sris Wilson. Mixing, mastering, and sound design was done by Milton Matthew. Visual design was done by Victor Garibay. Special thanks to Mark Dudiak for coming over and spending some hours here uh, chatting and having some beers. For more information on the music used in this episode, please visit our website, intothispodcast.com. In episode number 11, we are in two, two digits now. <laughs> episode 11, I had the great pleasure of having over Julie and Joanny from Projet Panger talking about the development of the gallery and about how the project started and we had a blast too so please if you can subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss anything and also if you have one minute or 30 seconds i would love if you can review us on itunes or wherever you listen to this podcast so that more people get to hear about it and if you have a friend who likes art who you think that would like this please let them know it's a It would be cool to be in communication and conversation with more people. Okay, so thanks for listening and we'll talk to you soon. Cheers.